Today we come to the final sermon in our series entitled Seven Last Words. Over the last seven weeks, we have given careful consideration and serious study to the last seven statements that Jesus spoke from the cross. Today we come to the last of the last. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 23. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 23, I'll be reading verse 46. Luke 23, beginning at verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Heavenly Father, we stand before you. And as we have prayed over these last seven weeks, we pray again today that you will not just inform us or inspire us, but you will transform us by the renewing of your word. Oh, Father, we pray that your word goes forth and produces fruit. We pray that we hear it, receive it, and retain it in our lives. Lord, we love you, and we pray that you will help me to preach and help us to listen well. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Crescendo is a musical term. It means to have an ever-growing, gradual increase in force and volume. When you and I come to the seventh statement of Jesus from the cross, we discover the crescendo of Christ. Dr. Luke is very intentional when he says that then he cried out in a loud voice. The ancient phrase is megalophone, from which we get the English derivative megaphone. Jesus did not die a victim. He died victorious. His death was not tragic. It was triumphant. Jesus' tone was not solemn, but rather celebratory. He cried out in a loud voice. How loud was the voice, you ask? The same phrase is used by John in Revelation chapter 5. It's there where we read, Then I heard the voice of many angels, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne, and in a loud voice, that's our phrase, megalophone, in a loud voice, they cried and shouted, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. On that day, you will not be able to register the volume with any sophisticated decibel meter. There is no way that you can fathom how loud 10,000 times 10,000 angels will be. Yet on this day, when Jesus was crucified, when you expect for one who's coming to the end of life to have as much strength as a whisper on his lips, he dies with as much vim and vigor, power and passion as you can ever imagine. Jesus says with the volume of 10,000 angels, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus says this with a loud voice. Once again, this is Luke's way of reminding us that nobody takes the life of Jesus. He lays it down on his time and according to his task. He said this with a loud voice. Don't forget that Jesus is offering this last statement really as a word of praise. It's a word of praise that is spoken in the midst of pain. 
Don't ever forget that Jesus had been dangling precariously on a cross of wood for the last six hours. He had experienced excruciating pain and suffering that was both physical and spiritual. Physically, his body was bruised and bloodied and beaten. He barely looked alive, let alone human. Spiritually, Jesus had drained the cup of God's holy hostility and righteous wrath, which should be poured out against sinners like you and a sinner like me. The New Testament author says that Jesus is the propitiation of our sin. What that means is, is that Jesus satisfied the righteous requirements of God. He satisfied the righteous requirements that sin must be paid for. And Jesus is a substitutionary sin bearer. And not only did he satisfy the righteous requirements of God, but he shielded us from the divine wrath which should be poured out against us. That's what it means when the author says he is the propitiation of our sin. He satisfied righteous requirements. And in the process, he shielded us so that we would not be affected by the condemnation that came upon him. Jesus was one who suffered physically and spiritually. The church throughout the ages had always said that Jesus paid a sin debt he did not owe because you and I have a sin debt that we cannot pay. And Jesus came to the end of life and he finally and fully and freely paid your sin debt. He gets to the end and he offers a word of praise. It's really a word of trust. It's a word of praise and trust in the midst of pain. And therein lies a great lesson for you and me. For we ought to praise God, not just in moments of pleasure, but also in moments of pain. We ought to praise God, not just when life is comfortable, but even when life is chaotic. We ought to praise God in success as well as in setbacks. It is James, the brother of our Lord, who said, I consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now the reason that we consider it pure joy when we face numerous trials is not because our joy is in the pain. Our joy is in the God of the pain. It's not that our joy is in the cancer. Our joy is in the God of the cancer. It's not that our joy is in unemployment. Our joy is in the God of unemployment. It's not that our joy is in marital difficulty. Our joy is in the God of marital difficulty. It's not that our joy is in heartache. Our joy is in the God of the heartache. So we can understand that Jesus is praising God in the midst of pain. And you and I need to do the same thing. For when we suffer, we ought to shout. When we have pain, we ought to praise. When we feel agony, we ought to give glory unto God. For we know what it is to be surrounded by darkness. There are times that we know what it is to have pain pulsating throughout our bodies. We know what it is to be abandoned by all of our closest friends and even to feel God forsaken. And in that moment, what does Jesus do? He praises God Almighty. You and I ought to praise God Almighty. You ask the question, but pastor, how can I do that? How can I praise even in the midst of pain? We said before, And I'll say it again, don't ever doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. This is how Jesus is able to praise God in the midst of pain. He did not doubt in the darkness of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he remembered in the light of his glorious baptism that same God declared, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You can handle the darkness because you know what it is to live in the marvelous light. 
You can handle the forsakenness because you know what it is for him to be faithful unto you. You can handle the my God, my God, why? Because you know thou art mine. Jesus in this moment can praise God in the midst of pain because he knows that his relationship with God has been restored. His relationship has not been permanently severed and separated. He can handle the my God, my God, why? Because he knows thou art mine. So he offers this seventh statement. It is a statement of completion. It's a statement of trust. It is a prayer of praise. Jesus says something that he would have spoken literally thousands of times throughout his life. He's quoting Psalm 31, verse 5. In that ancient text, it says, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. This would have been part of the evening prayer that every Jewish child would pray as he or she was being tucked into bed. I am confident that Joseph and Mary would have led Jesus and the siblings in this prayer. That every evening when they came time for their evening prayers, they would read and recite this portion of scripture. That as they were being tucked into bed, they would say, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. This statement has been likened to that prayer that maybe you were taught as a child. That prayer that talks about, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It's that same uh, prayer of confidence that I've trusted you in the daytime and I will trust you in the nighttime. I've trusted you when my eyes were awake. I will trust you when my eyes are asleep. I will trust you in every waking watch of every waking hour. I will trust you even in the darkness of night. I will trust you. It's a statement of confidence. It's a statement of trust. It's a prayer of praise. Now, Jesus tinkers with this statement just a bit. But don't be alarmed. That's okay. Because Jesus has every right and authority to tinker with Scripture. Because he's the author of Scripture. You may notice that according to Psalm 31.5, Jesus does not say what's at the end of that verse from the cross. And from the cross, he seems to insert a word at the very beginning. Jesus does not say, redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Jesus doesn't say that because he doesn't need to say that. He doesn't need redeeming. He is the one who has purchased your redemption. So he doesn't need to say that last part. And then he inserts a word at the very beginning. He says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The psalmist never would have dreamed of identifying God Almighty as Father. He would have thought that to be irreverent. But yet Jesus routinely identifies God Almighty as Father. It's a term of endearment. There's a relationship that exists. Even as early as 12 years of age, Jesus says to his earthly parents, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? Early in his ministry, he teaches his disciples how to pray. He says, when we pray, you ought to say, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When Jesus offers the Sermon on the Mount, which could be his greatest sermon ever preached, he speaks of God Almighty as father 17 times. In John chapters 14, 15, and 16, which is a a very large teaching passage of Christ. In those three chapters of John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus identifies God the Father 45 times in that passage. 
In the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus identifies God Almighty as Father an additional six times. Routinely, Jesus identifies God with his one word, Father. Even at the very beginning of his time on the cross, he says Father. At the very end of his time on the cross, he says Father. Father is how he starts the statements. Father is how he ends the statements. In the first statement, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And here in the seventh statement, he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit undeniably the best way for us to understand God almighty is to use the word that Jesus most frequently used to identify God almighty which is father so we can boldly go to God and we can call him our daddy we can call him Abba we can call him father it's not that God is mother it's not that God is a cosmic parent It's not that God is just that other thing in the sky. No, he's father. Jesus identified him as father frequently and routinely, and we would do well to do the very same thing. He is our father. This morning, I want to tell you that you have a father in heaven who loves you more than you can ever imagine. He loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you with a greater love than the greatest love that your best friend has for you. He loves you. Your father in heaven loves you. And I realize that for some, that's a problematic statement. It's hard for some to wrap our minds around the concept that God Almighty is father and that father loves us. And the reason that's so hard is because there are a lot of bad dads in this world. And maybe... Maybe you were raised by one of those bad dads, a dad who was abusive, absent, cold, distant. Yet I want to tell you this morning that your God in heaven, your father, he is kind and compassionate. He is close and he is consistent. He loves you with a greater love than you can ever imagine or fathom in this world. And still, you may press back just a bit. You may say, but pastor, how can you describe that God as a loving father? Because he permitted and allowed his one and only son to hang on a cross and die. That doesn't sound very loving to me. You may even push back and say, pastor, you've got one son. What if your one son was teetering between life and death? Would you not move heaven and earth in order to rescue your one and only begotten son? And I understand the argument, but I've said to you before, once again, what I'll say today, that the reason God voluntarily turned his head away from his son momentarily is so that God may turn his face toward you for all of eternity. That God was reconciling a world of lost sinners unto himself. Not counting men's sins against them, but counting men's sins against Christ. Jesus died in our stead. And the Bible is about the plan of salvation and the man of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And from the very beginning, before time even began, God the Father understood that in order to save sinners like you and like me he would have to substitute sacrifice uh, his son as our substitute the Lord Jesus himself and Jesus died on the cross so that we may have eternal life and God the father has the uncanny ability to bring good out of apparent bad he understands how he can flip something that is so perceived as evil and vile 
turn it on its head and bring about something that's good. This is why the apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, 28, we know that our God works in all things to bring about good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Friend, I want you to know you have a father in heaven and that father in heaven is good and loving. He loves you with a greater love than you've ever experienced in your life. And it's to this father that Jesus cries out in a loud voice. He offers a word of trust and completion. He offers a word of satisfaction and a, pray, a prayer of praise. He says, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit into your hands. The hands of God are symbols of strength and security. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's what Moses uses to describe how God delivered the Israelites from their Egyptian captivity. The psalmist says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And Jesus, speaking about the security of our salvation in him, says in John chapter 10, that no one can snatch them out of my father's hands. That spiritual song is exactly right. He's got the whole world in his hands he's got you and me brother in his hands he's got you and me sister in his hands he's got everybody in his hands he's got the whole world in his hands the hands of God are strong and secure and this is where Jesus places his spirit into the hands of God this past week I came across this thought the thought was that on that great last day, when God gives all of his children glorified bodies, those glorified bodies will not have any scars. Can I get an amen? No blemishes. Can I get an amen? You will have a perfect body that will last forever. And in heaven, there will be no scars on anybody except one, the Lord Jesus. For he will have nail-scarred hands for all of eternity. You ask the question, why does Jesus have scars on his body for all of eternity? And his is a glorified body. And when we get our glorified body, we will have no scars. Part of that answer is given to us in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16. For I have engraven you in the palm of my hands, says the Lord. That when Jesus looks down and God Almighty looks down upon the hands of Christ, he will see your name in the nail-scarred hands of Christ. That these hands of Christ are like his daddy's hands. They are strong and secure and your salvation is held not just in this world, but in the one to come. Not just for the here and now, but the there and then. For your salvation is eternal and you are in the nail-scarred hands of Christ. I don't know about you, but that was a Holy Ghost moment right there in my office when I sat there and realized, hallelujah, praise the Lord, the nail-scarred hands of Jesus can hold me for all of eternity and when he looks down he sees my name he sees your name tattooed stamped and engraved in the palm of his hands praise his holy name in the moment of crucifixion on calvary's hill jesus said father into your hands i commit my spirit that word commit in the ancient text it means to entrust. It means to deposit. It means to set oneself alongside. 
The reason Jesus can trust his spirit to the Father is because the Father is trustworthy. Paul says to his son of the ministry, Timothy, I know whom I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. God the Father will never misplace what's entrusted into his care. He will never lose you like an absent-minded professor. He will uh, never allow anyone to come in and rob him and snatch you out of his hands as if he was a negligent homeowner. No, there's no way that anybody can rob God. There's no way anybody can snatch you out of his hands. There's no way he can forget where he's placed you. Because I know whom I have believed in. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him. So Jesus trusts his spirit into the very capable hands of God. Hands that are strong and secure. Into your strong, secure hands, O God, I commit, I entrust, I deposit my spirit. That begs the question, is there anything that you need to entrust into the hands of God today? Is there anything that you need to entrust into the hands of God? Well, then you may ask yourself the question, well, what should I entrust into the hands of God? And the short answer is anything and everything. We need to entrust our heart, soul, mind, and strength into the hands of God. We need to entrust our living into the hands of God. We need to entrust our dying into the hands of God. We need to entrust everything between our living and our dying into the hands of God. We need to entrust everything beyond our living and our dying into the hands of God. There is nothing that's off limits for everything ought to be placed into the strong, secure hands of God Almighty because that is a safe deposit spot where we can give it unto God and it will be held there for I know whom I believed in and I'm persuaded he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. There is nothing that we give unto God that will be misplaced. Therefore, we ought to give him everything. So once again, let me get back to my question. Is there anything today that you need to entrust into the strong, careful hands of God? Perhaps a more pressing way to look at it is for me to ask you these questions. Is there anything that you worry about? Is there anything that keeps you up at night? Is there anything you're consumed by in this season of life? If the answer is yes to any of that, that is what you need to entrust into his care. Are you worried about the cancer? Entrust it to him. Are you worried about the upcoming doctor's visit? Entrust it to him. Are you worried about the marriage? Entrust it to him. Are you worried about the security of your job? Entrust it to him. Are you worried about which college you will enter? Entrust it to him. Are you worried about the deadbeat that your daughter is dating? Entrust it to him. Are you worried about the friend selection of your sons? Entrust it to him. Are you worried about the beast of inflation that will devour your savings in the twilight years of life? Entrust it to him. Are you worried about how you're going to navigate life after the death of your spouse of some 52 years? Entrust it to him. What I'm saying this morning, is there anything that you worry about? Is there anything that keeps you up at night? Is there anything uh, that consumes you right now? Whatever that is, entrust into his care because he's strong and he's secure and he can handle it 
So Jesus says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. In preparation for this sermon, I also came across this thought. That when we worry, we become practicing atheist. For we act as if there is no God who can handle our crisis, our concern, or our catastrophe. When we worry, we act as if we are atheist, saying, there is no God who can handle my problem. There is no God who can handle my predicament. There is no God who can handle my prognosis. But oh, my friend, I know there is a God, and he is able to do immeasurably more than I can ever ask, think, or imagine. Once again, the apostle Paul says, I know whom I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Whatever it is that's in your heart, whatever it is that's in your life, whatever it is that nobody else knows about whatever it might be entrusted into the secure strong hands of God father into your hands I commit my spirit it's a word of praise it is a word of completion it's a word of satisfaction it's a word of great hope father into your hands I commit my spirit this is something that Jesus would have prayed on a daily basis It's probably not a bad idea for you and me to pray this on a daily basis. Father, into your hands, I commit anything. Into your hands, I commit everything. Into your hands, I commit whatever you have before me today. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now, once again, uh, as we have discovered over the last seven weeks, Jesus is our representative. He dies in our place. He takes our punishment. And in a very representative type of way, he is telling us that what he is doing with his spirit, he will do with your spirit at the point of death. At the point of death, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He places his spirit into the very capable hands of God. Beloved, if you are in Christ, At the moment of your death, what Jesus did to his spirit, he will do to your spirit. He will place your spirit in the very capable hands of God. Therefore, Christian, death is not anything that should make you nervous. Death is not anything that should raise anxiety in your heart. We should not be afraid of death. We should not be fearful. Death is not the end of the road. It's merely a bend in the road. It's a door through which we follow Christ. And Jesus, as he gave his spirit unto the Father, when we die in Christ, he will give our spirit unto the Father. We can trust him. Because Jesus acknowledges that this transaction is immediate. There is no purgatory. There is no holding pattern. There is no death sleep. This is immediate. This is what caused the Apostle Paul to say to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Because the moment you and I stop breathing terrestrial air, we start breathing celestial air in heaven. It is an immediate transaction. He said of the Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that was immediate. And so in in your case, when you pass, when you die in Christ, immediately Jesus will usher your spirit into the very presence of God Almighty. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus has a way of reversing the curse in every definition of that expression. 
Jesus reverses the curse. The curse that started from the Garden of Eden, the cross of Calvary reverses that curse. The writer of the Hebrew letter says that it's appointed to man once to die, and then after that, the judgment. Jesus reverses that too. Because Jesus on the cross took your judgment upon himself. Then he died. And on the third day, he was raised to life so that you, beloved, may share in the resurrection of our Lord. So you know that Jesus has reversed the curse in every way possible. He's taken the judgment. He's taken the condemnation. He's taken the punishment upon himself. Then he died for you. So on the third day, he rose to give you eternal life. We have nothing to fear. I thought you'd get more excited. I really, really did. We have nothing to fear. Jesus reversed the curse. And in the completion of that moment, he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. It's Matthew who says he dismissed his spirit. He told his spirit, shoo, it's time to go. And he tells the spirit where to go. Matthew says he dismissed his spirit. It is Mark who says he breathed out his spirit. It is John who says he delivered up his spirit. All four gospel writers give the implication that Jesus is very much in control even to the very end. He's the maestro. He's the one pulling the strings. He's the one calling the shots. He is orchestrating a salvific symphony and he's ending with a grand crescendo. This is an amazing uh, overture. This is an amazing symphony. And Jesus declares it is finished. And then he, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathes out his spirit. It is completed. It is done. We have nothing to fear. Everything has been reversed in Christ. It's at this moment in the very next verse that Luke tells us about the centurion. When the centurion saw how this man died, he praised God. And he said, surely this was a righteous man. That's amazing. That testimony is astounding. The centurion would have been in charge of a hundred soldiers. I promise you, he had witnessed, he had led thousands of crucifixions. He knew how they were supposed to go. But when he saw how this man died. When he saw how this man died, he said, surely this was a righteous man. When he saw that darkness covered the land from high noon to three in the afternoon, when he saw and heard how this man offered a word of forgiveness when every other person who's ever been crucified offered a word of cursing, this man said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus was forgiving people that had beaten him and punched him and spit upon him. And in that moment, this man watched how Jesus said, Father, forgive them. This Roman centurion watched how this man named Jesus, this supposed rebel-rousing rabbi from Galilee, how he turned to the criminal on the cross and said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And when the centurion, who knows something about strength, 
when he saw that this man died with as much vim and vigor at the end of life than at any point of life or any amount of strength he'd ever seen and the centurion knew something about strength. This was stronger than anything he had witnessed on the battlefield. Surely this man was a righteous man. It is Matthew and Mark who tell us that on the lips of the centurion we find this phrase, surely this man was the son of God. I think when you put both the phrases together, I think what the Roman centurion said is surely this righteous man is the son of God. Surely this righteous man is the son of God. He said that just watching how Jesus died. He said that just listening to the seven statements of Christ from the cross. He said that just watching how people interacted with each other and with Jesus and how Jesus interacted with them. He said this before the resurrection. He said this before Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. This centurion said, surely this was a righteous man for he is the son of God. Now Luke also says, that there were other people at the foot of the cross and they went back down Calvary's hill shaking their head and beating their chest. And it's Luke who also says that in the background, in the distance, there were some other disciples and friends from Galilee and they watched from a distance everything that took place. But this Roman centurion, he said, surely this is a righteous man. He is the son of God. This morning, before I sit down, I've got to ask, how do you regard Christ on the cross? How do you look upon him? You can attempt to look upon him from a distance. I wouldn't do that if I were you. It's really quite dangerous. It's dangerous to try to follow Christ from a distance. When you do that, you can become easily distracted. How do you look upon the Christ, of, the Christ on the cross? Some of you could just walk away and shake your head in disbelief. I wouldn't advise that either. That's just foolish. But still others of you, you may say the same thing that the Roman centurion said. You may declare, surely this man is the righteous son of God. How you look upon Jesus determines everything in your living and your dying. Let me say that again. How you look upon Jesus determines everything in your living and your dying. This Roman centurion left that hill called Golgotha and he was part of the redeemed. He was one who went from death unto life. He was one who had no faith but then was given faith because he declared surely this man is the righteous son of God. Somehow the spirit awoke within him the realization that therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And what the Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 8, somehow this Roman centurion was beginning to format this and formulate this in his heart and in his mind. For surely there is nothing that can separate us and sever us from the love of God. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Why? Because surely this is the righteous son of God. When I think about this, 
And I realize that every person has to come to and through Calvary. Every person has to pass Golgotha. Every person has to come and you've got to do something with it. You've got to deal with the one who's dangling on the cross. And either you can try to follow him from a distance and I would not do that because you can get distracted. Or you can walk away and simply in disbelief, shake your head. I wouldn't do that. That's just plain foolish. I would encourage you to say with the Roman centurion, surely this man is the righteous son of God. When I think about the cross, when I think about what Jesus did for me, when I think about how he died in my stead, when I think about that he took the punishment that I deserved, when I think that all of my sin was heaped upon Jesus, when I consider he took an attorney's worth of condemnation on my behalf, I've got to quote what Edward Moat wrote. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, his anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. How you look upon Jesus determines everything in your living and your dying. So on this day, why don't you just quote the crescendo of Christ? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Is there something that you need to entrust into the strong, secure hands of Christ today? Maybe it is your heart and life. Maybe it is your problem. Maybe it is your secret. Maybe it is your sin. Maybe it is your worry. Maybe it is your future. Maybe it is that thing that keeps you up at night. Whatever it is, today I want you to know that you have a father who loves you and you can trust him because he's trustworthy. And today you can say right alongside Jesus, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And the reason I say that is because I share the same testimony as a Roman centurion. Surely, this man is the righteous son of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And anything and everything that we need to cast upon you, I pray that you'll help us to do that today. Father, maybe there's somebody here who needs to trust you with their life and their eternity. Help them to do that today. Maybe there's somebody here who has a problem that just drags them into church today. Lord, today, help us to cast all of that upon you because you care so very much for us. Oh, Father, thank you for these last seven weeks and thank you for this study and thank you that we come to the very end and with confidence and trust, we can say, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.